Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. It's nice to see you all. Hope you had a great Christmas and a great New Year celebration and uh, a safe trip here. Hope no uh, fender benders happen on the way. If you're a guest here with us this morning, uh, let me say we're really glad that you're here as well. Trust that you've been made to feel welcome um, on your way in and hope that when you leave, you're a little closer to God or a lot closer to God as a result of our being together this morning. So it's January 4th, 2015, first Sunday of the year, which means that we're coming off the typical busy, hectic holiday season. You know, holidays can be great, obviously, right? But they can also be physically exhausting. A lot of us take some time off from the week uh, during the holidays, but with all the running around, visiting family, friends, cleaning, decorating the house, preparing meals, eating meals, shopping, wrapping gifts, Getting back to the routine of work could uh, almost seem like a welcome break. But here's the thing about being physically exhausted. No matter how tired we are physically, we can always find a way to rejuvenate and to rest. I have a couple pictures here. Like maybe you like taking a nap on your favorite chair. Maybe even at work. Taking a nap on your favorite couch. Uh, Maybe taking a nap on the train on the way in. And you know what? This is why I I am deathly afraid of falling asleep in public. I love this guy here. Um, I hope that he doesn't wake up suddenly because that would leave a mark. Remember these days when the little kids are so tired, you know, they would fall asleep anywhere. And when they're really young, they'd like fall and, and their head goes like almost to their hip, and you wonder, like, how do they do that? How are they that flexible? Or maybe you're like this little cutie, and you like falling asleep while you eat. (laughs) It's a time saver. You know, you just eat and sleep at the same time. So the point is, there's like countless ways for us to rejuvenate when we're physically tired, when our bodies are exhausted. But when it it comes to finding rest for our souls, the options aren't limitless. In reality, there's only one way to find rest for our soul. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we do, I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. Um, you'll see this uh, prayer note card in the chair rack in front of you. Um, pull that out, rip off one, and uh, grab a pen if you need one or whatever to write with. Um, we're going to use these in a little while. I'll explain why, but I would like everybody to have one of these and something to write with. And uh, I'm going to pray for us while you do that. It's okay. I can still pray while you do that. Jesus, thank you uh, for this opportunity. It's great um, to be together this morning and to celebrate the first Sunday of the new year. And I would ask as a result of our being together, we would leave here differently, that we truly would find much needed rest for our souls, for those here this morning who are weary and burdened. And we pray these things, looking to you in your name, Lord. Amen.
So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, um, verses 28 through 30. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. If you want to use the, the uh, Bible in the chair rack in front of you, it's on page 977. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own and um, you, know, you would like one, feel free to take that one, okay? Uh, Dave, the executive pastor, is not here this morning, so I feel free to tell you that. Just go take them home. No, we're, we're very, very happy to give you a Bible if you need one. So Matthew chapter 11, 28 says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In order for us to respond appropriately um, to the invitation that Jesus gives, we really have to understand that Jesus' original audience was Jewish. And by this time in their history, they had already sustained two exiles, one under Babylon, one under uh, Assyria. And presently, they were being occupied by the Romans. Both exiles came after God had warned their nation over and over again about their continued disobedience and flagrant disregard for his laws. The Jews refused to listen to God's prophets, so God judged them by allowing their nation to be defeated by their enemies. So by Jesus' day, they had learned their lesson, and they took obedience to God's written laws very, very seriously. So seriously, in fact, um, that through the years, they had added thousands and thousands of man-made traditions in the hopes that these traditions would, would somehow help the Jewish people um, from avoiding breaking God's laws. It was almost like they built this massive fence around God's original written laws in the Old Testament. They didn't even want to get close to breaking those. They had identified about 613 written laws in the Old Testament that God handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. And among those, of course, are the Ten Commandments. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not kill. Honor your father and mother. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And it was was thought that... um, along with the written law that that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, that that God had also passed along um, what they would call the oral interpretation of the law as well. Jewish uh, religious leaders believed that these interpretations were to um, uh, the written law that... uh, Let me start over. (laughs) Jewish religious leaders believed these interpretations to the written law had been given um, to God by God to Moses, and then Moses to the elders, and then by the elders it had been transmitted uh, orally down through the ages. And these oral interpretations of the law uh, were passed down until 2nd century AD. Um, They were put down in written form um, in what is now known as the Mishnah, or the second law. Now, the Mishnah didn't exist in written form in Jesus' day, but it was alive and well through the oral interpretations they kind of actually had taken on a life of their own um, by Jesus' day and had ascended to a status on par with God's written laws. So let me give you an example of how these oral interpretations or traditions of the elders as they came to be known influenced the everyday lives of the Jewish people. This is really important because um, we really want to understand Jesus' original audience and, and what they heard when Jesus extended this invitation to find rest. 
Let me just look at the fourth command as an example. The fourth command um, is only one, remember, of the 613 written laws of the Old Testament. The fourth command is this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and work, but on the seventh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. So since the Jews were wanderers in the desert um, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, they really had no formal occupation from which to cease on the Sabbath. And since the Jewish leaders were really careful um, not to disobey God's laws for fear of eliciting further judgment, um, they relied on, on oral interpretations or the tradition of the elders to try to figure out exactly what God meant when he said, cease work on the Sabbath. Now, the Hebrew word for work in the fourth command was always used in the Old Testament in reference to the tabernacle. So the teachers of the law believed that any work at all related to the tabernacle was what God wanted ceased on the Sabbath. Now, the tabernacle, just in case you're not sure, it was like this massive tent um, that was set up in the middle of the Israelites' camp when they wandered, you know, for 40 years throughout the wilderness. Um, it represented God's presence with his people, and it's where, where the, the, the Israelites would, would gather to worship their God. And it was a huge endeavor to set it up and to tear it down whenever God um, would have them move their camp. So according to the tradition of the elders, there were 39 categories of work related to the tabernacle, and they were uh, considered forbidden on the Sabbath. The, the first 11 categories related to uh, baking bread, because bread was baked on a weekly basis in the tabernacle. So anything that had to do with that became forbidden work on the Sabbath. Planting wheat, plowing the field, reaping grown wheat stalks, binding sheaves of wheat, threshing, winnowing, sifting kernels, grinding wheat, sifting flour, kneading dough, of course, baking, um, all of those forbidden on the Sabbath. The tabernacle also had um, intricately woven materials all over the place, like um, the priest's uniform. Uh, there were cloth partitions in the tabernacle. Uh, there was giant leather and cloth sheets that served as a, a multi-layered roof over top. So the next 13 categories of work that were forbidden um, had to do with woven materials. So sewing two threads together was forbidden. Separating two threads was forbidden. Tying a knot on the Sabbath was forbidden. Loosening a knot was forbidden. Part of the tabernacle's roof was made of animal hides. So according to the tradition of the elders, there were seven categories of work forbidden on the Sabbath that related to leather work. Trapping deer, slaughtering deer, flaying, salting, curing, scraping, cutting hides, all those things. And the remaining eight categories comprised bulk manual labor. Writing two letters was forbidden on the Sabbath. And I, I, they're not talking about like, hey, I'm going to write a letter to my friend. You know, hey, it's good that I miss you. I hope you're doing well. No, they mean like writing literally two letters, like the, the letter A and B. That was forbidden. Erasing old text in order to write two letters was forbidden. Extinguishing a flame was forbidden on the Sabbath. So God forbid um, your tent caught on fire on the Sabbath because everybody else couldn't help you. They'd be like, oh, man, I'm sorry. It's the Sabbath. Um, lighting a flame was forbidden. Striking with a hammer, carrying an object from one place to another. So from the fourth command alone, the tradition of the elders compiled 39 categories of work that they were forbidden from performing. 
And you might be thinking, all right, well, that's like 39 extra laws. That's like not that bad, right? Well, it's actually really bad because it gets worse. From each of these 39 categories break down uh, into subcategories called tuldot. And it's from these that we really get into some nitty-gritty traditions that tend to split hairs. For instance, it was believed to be against the law, read oral tradition, to spit on the Sabbath. Because when you spit, the spittle would hit the dirt and the dirt would kind of like separate and that would be like plowing. So that was considered against the law on the Sabbath. And on and on and on, ad nauseum, laws like these were added and continually heaped on the backs of the Jewish people for them to obey in order to find peace with God. You get the picture. Can you imagine growing up in that culture? Can you imagine like being responsible to somehow know thousands and thousands and thousands of laws that affected your daily routine and you were expected to keep them all in order to find peace with God? No wonder they were wearied. No wonder they were burdened. The Greek word weary describes those who are physically tired from strenuous effort and exertion. It's used to describe manual laborers and the weariness of soldiers in battle. Basically, the word means to be worn out and exhausted. To be burdened refers to the added weight and responsibilities piled on the shoulders of those who are already tired and weary. In the New Testament, the the Greek word for burden refers to the cargo of a ship. The people Jesus addressed desperately needed rest. And instead of finding help and guidance from their religious leaders, they only found more and more rules and regulations that were heaped on their backs. The laws that God originally gave Moses were never intended to make people righteous before him. They were meant to reveal his holiness and to lead people to the Messiah, to Christ. The law was meant to show God's people that they could never measure up to his standard of holiness. Instead, they were to serve as a constant reminder that they needed a Savior. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this, Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. And again, the Apostle Paul writes, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified through faith, through faith. Around 180 BC, the writings of a Jewish scribe from Jerusalem named Ben Sirach were compiled into a book called The Wisdom of Sirach. It was a well-known religious writing in Jesus' day. Many Jews lived their lives by writings such as this one. I want to read uh, an excerpt from, from this to give you an idea of, of again, uh, the culture in which they lived. For wisdom is true to her name, Sirach writes. She is not accessible to many. Listen, my child, and take my advice. Don't reject my counsel. Now listen to the words he uses. Put your feet into her fetters and your neck into her collar. Offer your shoulder to her burden. 
And don't be impatient of her bonds. Court her with all your soul, with all your might. Keep in her ways. Search for her. Track her down. She will reveal herself. Once you hold her, don't let her go. For in the end, you will find rest in her, and she will take the form of joy for you. Her fetters, you will find a mighty defense. Her collar is a precious necklace. Her yoke will be like a golden ornament, and her bonds, purple ribbons. It's like they celebrated um, the effort to try to learn um, and study all, not just the written laws, but all the traditions of the elders in order to find peace with God. Study and adherence to the traditions of men was likened to the donning of fetters and putting a yoke around one's neck. Now, living in DuPage County, we don't see a whole lot of yolks out there, except for when we break an egg, we see yolks. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. The yolks of his day were, were a frame usually made of wood or sometimes iron. And it was for joining two oxen or other draft animals together so they can pull a, a, a plow or a cart or other heavy load. The yoke was designed to make a burden easier because it was supposed to distribute the weight um, evenly across the shoulders. But through the years, the yoke became a symbol of hardship and of servitude, the sum total of obligations, which according to the teaching of the rabbis, a person must take upon himself in order to find peace with God. This is what Jesus was referring to in his scathing condemnation of the religious leaders of his day when he said, you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can't hardly carry. And you yourselves won't lift a finger to help them. Jesus warned the people of his day concerning religious leaders, don't do what the Pharisees and teachers of the law do. For they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. So Jesus says, to the people who are weary and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're hearing this and you're really having a hard time associating God um, with somebody who is gentle and humble in heart. Maybe you're having a hard time thinking that God would actually offer you rest. And if that's you, you're not alone. According to a recent book called America's Four Gods, uh, the way Americans view God falls into basically four categories. Three of those are not good. And according to the research in this book, 78% of Americans believe that God is either authoritative and judgmental or critical or distant and disengaged. Not a whole lot of rest in those categories, huh? Not a whole lot of gentleness in those categories or humility. But that's just not an accurate description of who God is. 
God's not about wearing us out with an endless list of do's and don'ts in order for us to find right standing with him. He's about offering us rest from all that. The Greek word that Jesus used that's translated rest here in this passage, it means to make to cease or to interrupt. It carries the concept of refreshment and relief. Now, when I was in... uh, Seminary. I remember uh, um, vividly uh, a, pre- a professor of mine saying, um, we can learn a lot about theological words when we see how those words are used elsewhere in the Bible in non-theological ways. Because it gives us like a broader understanding of, of theology when we do that. Well, there's an instance in um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament where this very word for rest is used that sheds a lot of light on the kind of rest that Jesus offers our souls. It's found early on in the book of Genesis. It's in the account of the flood. The Bible describes how grieved God um, was because man had become so deprived that every inclination, the Bible says, of their heart was only evil all the time. So God had Noah, one of the precious few, who still honored him, build an ark to save he and his family. When it was completed and, and Noah, his family, and all the animals were safely inside, God proceeded to flood the earth. The Bible says that on that day, all the springs of the deep burst forth and all the floodgates of the heavens were opened. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 23 feet. After the rain stopped and the floodgates were closed, 40 days the ark floated on top of the surface of the earth on the waters. The Bible says that after 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. So picture this, 40 days floating on the surface of the water. Noah wanted to see if the water had receded enough to reveal dry ground. If so, he knew that it wouldn't be too long um, before they could venture out of the ark. So picture this dove now. He lets go out of the window and this dove begins to fly and it's beating its wings and it's beating its wings flying over literally an endless expanse of open water. The Bible says that the dove could find nowhere to perch. That's the word rest that Jesus offers us. It could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand, took the dove, brought it back to himself. The bird couldn't land because there was nowhere for it to land. There was no dry ground. Literally, none. So it returned to the ark. Anytime, anytime we look 
elsewhere to find rest for our souls apart from Christ. We're like that bird. It's like we're flying over an endless expanse of open water, seeking something that just doesn't exist. We cannot find rest apart from Christ. If you remember nothing else from this morning, please remember that. The Bible says salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can never find rest for our souls apart from a relationship with Christ established by placing our faith in him. Trying on our own is futile. And it's only going to leave us weary and burdened. That's why Jesus, his invitation is to a relationship with him. It's not to a bunch of other things. We'll never ever find rest for our souls in accomplishments. Not like graduating from an elite college or landing the perfect job or closing a huge sales contract. We'll never find rest for our souls having a high level of status, having a bunch of people look up to us. We'll never find it in possessions. Having the newest phone or the newest model, luxury car or SUV, wearing the finest clothes, buying a new home in a great neighborhood. We'll never find rest for our souls in hobbies like music or books, art, movies. We'll certainly never find it in in religion. Otherwise, the Jews, of all people, they would have had the greatest amount of rest there could be. We'll certainly not find it in distractions like illicit sex or, or drug abuse. Apart from the illicit sex and drug abuse, there's nothing inherently evil with accomplishments. I just want to make that clear. There's nothing wrong with graduating from an elite school. There's nothing wrong with landing the, the, great, uh, uh, you know, the, the dream job. There's nothing wrong with having people look up to you. There's nothing wrong with having the newest phone or driving a new car or wearing nice clothes. There's nothing wrong with hobbies. However, all of those things become nothing but an endless expanse of open water the moment we look to them to bring us rest for our souls. In other words, we have to stop looking for something that just doesn't exist. Jesus said that we can learn from him. What does he teach us here in this simple invitation? First thing is that true rest for our souls can only be found in a relationship with him through faith. Since we have been justified, the Bible says, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that we can learn from Christ's invitation is that God isn't about beating us down. He wants us to stop our endless and futile searching for peace with God apart from him. The Bible says, 
when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We can't earn right standing with God, no matter how hard we try. Earlier I asked you to take a, you know, one of these sheets, and so here I'm going to ask you to grab your pen. If we're going to take Christ up on his invitation to find rest for our souls, um, logically, there has to be a little bit of movement, right? Because if we um, head towards something, we have to leave something. So my question to you this morning is this. What open water are you flying over right now? What have you been looking to to find the rest for your soul that only Christ can give? Maybe it is an accomplishment. I don't know. Maybe it is status. Maybe it's possessions. I don't know. Maybe it's distractions. Maybe it's hobbies. Maybe it's religious observances. I don't know. But I'm trusting that you do. I've been praying that God would um, clearly reveal to all of us what it is that we look after that only he can provide. Now here's the deal. Maybe most of you already know Christ by faith. Maybe, you know, I'm pretty sure that's probably the case, that um, at some point in your life you've um, put your faith in him, maybe years ago, maybe recently, I don't know. But maybe there's some of you here this morning um, and you've never done that. You're just like at this point in your spiritual journey where you're like, you know, you're just trying to figure it all out. Not even sure if God's real. That's fine. We're super glad you're here. This is a great place to be if that's you. But if that's you, I just want to encourage you Jesus is clearly saying, you will not find rest for your soul apart from him. It is only found in a relationship with him. And that is a prayer away. And so my prayer for you this morning is that this would be the day that you would walk out of here having for the first time experienced true rest for your soul. But if you're a Christian, if you've followed Christ for years, and somehow along the way you've been distracted and you've been trying to maintain such, you know, rest by other things, then jot that down. I'm going to pray and then, um, and then I'm going to explain how we're going to do communion. Okay, so, so uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the invitation that Jesus has given. Sometimes we do feel beat down. But that's because we've turned from the source of true rest, tried to find it in other things or other places or other people. And it's left us weary. It's left us burdened. It's left us lost. It's left us confused. It's left us wondering if we could find our way back or if we've done enough. 
and we're tired of it. We don't want to be like that dove flying over an endless expanse of open water looking for something that doesn't exist. We want to take you up on your offer. So we do that this morning. In the name of Jesus. Amen. What a great way to start the year. Uh, I'm going to pray, um, and then, of course, we'll be done. But before I do, if you would like someone to pray with you, we'll have members of our prayer team up front. Please feel free to come. They would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your invitation to find rest. And uh, I just pray for all those who made decisions this morning um, that this year would um, prove to be way different because of the direction in which we face. May we face you and receive only what you offer. We pray this in your name. Amen.